Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Black on Black Education podcast. I'm so happy to have you here for another episode. Today, you're going to be hearing an amazing conversation that I had with my father, Jamal Thomas, and Delmar Dwele of John Jay College. We talk about gender roles and how those present themselves in the classroom and specifically how they affect our Black boys and our boys of color. Too often, we don't take the time to reflect upon how gender roles have affected ourselves and the way that we present in the classroom. As teachers, as students, we have to attack these roles that society has put on us so that we are not hindering the development of young boys of color. And so we have a really in-depth and in-tune conversation about how those things present themselves and the reflection that needs to happen in order for us to overcome um, that socialization. And so I really hope that you take the time to listen to the full episode and really be honest with yourself about what you've experienced in terms of gender roles and how you can change those things um, to open up a wider conversation and to expand the possibilities for all people, but specifically in this conversation, our boys of color. And so I can't wait to hear from you guys what you learned and I hope you enjoy. So welcome back to the Black on Black Education podcast. I'm so excited for another episode. Um, So please, our wonderful guests, please introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, um, thank you both for having me. Um, I was saying earlier, I think it's cool that this is a father and daughter podcast. Um, I got to talk to my family about figuring something out, even though they all hate anything with social media or putting themselves out there. And that probably ties back to our whole family history. Um, and I'm the exact opposite. So I like to put myself out there. My name is Delmar Duallet. Um, my, name is, my name is pronounced actually Delmar. Um, my family is from Somalia. I was born and raised in New York City, spent a few years in North Carolina when I was younger. Um, I'm a social worker. Um, I love storytelling, love listening to stories, reading memoirs, documentaries. Um, I worked on a podcast before, um, and I'm thinking of other ways to just share and learn about people's stories. So I think that's who I am. Love to hear it. So this is unusual for us. We have both me and my father both recording today. Um, So we are going to start having a conversation about gender roles and how those show up and present themselves in school. So please walk us through the beginning conversation that you would start with folks about gender roles and how they, and the implications of those in society, but also in education. Yeah, um, I think that's a really good question. I think the way I always start a conversation around gender roles with students, staff, um, people I'm working with is usually, um, and this is the activity people do a lot, is where you create the mailbox and you create the female box. Um, So on a big chart of paper, I would ask everyone, like, what were you taught? Um, And I would start with, let's say, the man box. What were you taught about what it means to be a man? What did you hear as a little boy? Um, And usually people almost always, it doesn't matter who you're asking, say the same things. Um, as a man, you got to be strong, you have to be masculine, you can't cry, um, you have to be a breadwinner, um, you have to date women, you can date a lot of women, um, you should be tall, loud, um, overpowering, all these different things in the man box. And then I always ask them, well, what happens when a man is not in that box? What are they called? How are they treated? Um, and it's usually around the same things they're usually called. And I hope I could curse on the podcast. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who the sponsors are. <laughs> um, but yeah, people usually would say, if you don't fit into that box, you'll be called a bitch, pussy, fag, gay. You know, those are the things that men are called when they don't fit in that box. I'm sure lots of other things. 
um, you throw like a girl, you act like a girl, and that those things are negative. And then same thing for the female box, um, or the exact opposite. Um, when you put it inside that female box and on the outside, and that's something I always ask people is, usually I don't have enough time to go through this activity really long, but I always say, think about a point in your life where you were told one of these things. So it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter if you're the most feminine woman or the most masculine man, we all had a point, especially as children, where we didn't fit into that box. And someone corrected or policed us. So someone told you, stop sitting like that, stop laughing like that, stop running like that, stop talking like that, stop acting like that. Um, and we're kind of all shaped and socialized, regardless of what kind of household you're in. Um, of course, some are more extreme, but we go to school, we go to church, we go into the mosque. Um, you're hanging out with friends, you're in a sport, in the extracurricular. So you're watching the news, you're watching TV shows. We're all socialized to be a certain way when we're born, whether you know, it's supposed to be more manly or more um, feminine. And that kind of shapes our life experiences. So I think, especially more with men, um, when we think about you know, a little boy and the older he gets, when people stop letting him talk about how he feels um, and express himself, express himself and reach out really for help and support. And then it's always funny when you think about men getting older and then everyone asking them, how do you feel? Talk about your feelings. <laughs> well, how long have we been spent where everyone's telling us don't do that? And if you do that, you're all those things on the outside. And I think the way it really connects to education is there's a way men and boys are perceived, but especially black and Latino men. Um, there's a word that I really hate, but people use a lot like hyper-masculine, um, where it's like, Black men and Latino men are super aggressive. Um, and I think it's kind of racist, that term. Because if we think about the people who have a lot of power, white men and the things that they have done to communities and institutions and just white supremacy, that's a whole thing, right? That could be a whole podcast. Um, we really got to start unlearning those things. And it's not easy, right? Because we, we learn how to be in this world to navigate it. Um, so I think that's usually how I have people think about gender roles. I do that activity and then I help people reflect on themselves. And not that I'm saying, don't be who you are. Think about why you are the way you are. It hasn't worked out for you. Um, not showing your emotions, not reaching out for help. Um, you know, and the pressure that we all face. How old are you, Delma? I'm 28. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm always curious with, with, with ages because there, there is... Um, you know, we, I guess we don't have a complete generational thing, but you know, you're some. I'm 41. Um, you you say you're 28. He was 22. Um, so that there's there's these differences in times that people grow up. Um, and you know, in, in speaking to you know some of the stuff you mentioned, um, yeah, my time was very very different. You know, what I mean, we threw those words around with reckless abandon, um, and and there was nothing wrong with it. Time. Um, it wasn't until you know I, I, I got older and, and, and started to have these conversations with um, you know with Eva. I, I guess again, society, media, like everything changed, and so um, as those things change, you, you look back at you know behavior and language, um, and you're like, wow, this this that that wasn't necessarily you know okay, but at the time it was okay. Um, so it, it, it's it's interesting, um, I guess, having to teach people. Um, that now do you do do, do you in, in, as a part of the conversation um, do you try to help people understand time and you know like what people did before and 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 I guess not necessarily um, uh, 
just helping people to, to understand the perspective of, 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 of things and that the way things today, it wasn't always like that so that they, so that they can judge things um, with, with a different perspective. Do you, do you, yeah. Do you yeah. I don't know if I do something necessarily with time, but I think when we do these activities, I notice when I ask people like, okay, we write in, it's usually easy to fill inside the box, but then when I'm like, okay, what happens when you're outside the box? Um, what do you get called? Or, and you know, sometimes it can be, there's one box that can get filled more on the inside and the outside. I notice for women, it's easier to fill on the inside, but the outside not as many bad words, and man is usually the opposite. You know, it's a couple things people think of, but a lot of bad things you can be called. Mm. Um, but I always, when I ask, like, oh, what are you called? Um, what do we call men who aren't, you know, like that, or women who aren't, you know, fitting into the box? There's always a little bit of nervousness or hesitation. So I'm like, okay, not what you would say, but what would you hear other people say? Then everyone can answer. <laughs> then everyone's like, oh, this is what they say. And I think because then it doesn't feel personal. Right. Um, and I think when we're doing these activities and even having these conversations, it's not necessarily to shame people. I guess if you hear someone saying something like that in the moment, right, our gut reaction, you know, and the way you feel, that's, that's real, whether, you know, you can sit there and say, hey, no, don't say that calmly, and maybe you can't, because that could trigger or bring something up for you. But I think it's more, especially in like a classroom or a group or activity setting, um, or someone you feel comfortable with, not shaming someone for thinking or saying certain things, and like, how can we talk about that? Like, sometimes when we have these conversations, and even me, I've definitely, I've been that person in college and on Facebook who had argued and gone back and forth and had no tolerance for people. But then I think about my grandmother or my grandfather or a cousin, um, and I'm like, they would say these things that may be 10 times worse, um, their perspectives on things, and how would I interact with them, and how would I want other people to treat them? Um, something I remember learning about, actually working at John Jay, is about restorative justice and like how do we kind of heal from things where everyone benefits right like if someone is saying something wrong or think or does something wrong instead of you know just throwing them away or you know locking them up or kicking them out or cursing them it's like how can we help this person who has messed up but they also need some kind of healing and growing right. um, if it makes sense and sometimes things are small it's not like you know, a major thing, and for me at least. Um, it's not, it might not be a major thing. It could be simple conversation, but I think kind of all stems back to we're not really taught how to communicate with anyone in our lives. And then we're in rooms with people who think differently than us or raised differently or, like you said, a different generation. Because um, this, you know, having, um, what is it, intergenerational conversations can be hard. Like, you being in your 20s, talking to someone in their 40s versus talking to someone in their 60s or 70s, we have such a different life experiences. But I think if we're coming from a place of understanding, and I know me, if I always can figure out where someone is coming from or why they think the way they think, then I can tolerate them more. But if I can't somehow make that connection, then I am more willing to be like, let me throw this person in the garbage, throw them away or stay away from them. One of my best friends said something to me one time that, you know, stuck with me. I thought it was one of the smartest things I ever heard. Um, and, it, and it's that you don't necessarily always have to be like-minded. Um, but if you're like-hearted, then you can get along. And so if, if you can, if you, if you recognize that people are coming from a good space, um, then even if they think different from you, uh, you should have the ability to, to, to communicate and, and try to get an understanding of where they're coming from. Um, and it's, it's, it's super important for, uh, you know, for the, for the world, you know, for us to be yeah. doing that. Yeah, I, I really like that. Well, I definitely agree. And I think something that I talk about, and I love that you brought up restorative justice in that moment, because I 
think a lot of folks, especially at John Jay, we have a lot of um, activists, like activists at John Jay College. And I appreciate it and love the work that they're, that they're doing. I think sometimes we forget that restorative justice has to go both ways. It cannot just be for the black and brown folks who are incarcerated or the black and brown children who are um, in low income communities and things like that. We can't only fight for restorative justice for them. We also, if we really believe in the practice of restorative justice, we have to learn how to do that um, with folks who are stuck in their socialization as well. Um, we've been socialized to 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 think and and act certain ways and so has everyone else in every other community in the United States and so when we're having and in the world so when we're having these nuanced conversations it's very easy to get like you said frustrated and have no tolerance for certain things um but then we also have to we also have to recognize that not everyone is doing the same work that we're doing or even has access to yeah. the same knowledge that we have access to. Um, so I think that's so, so important. Yeah, and I think it's okay that sometimes, you know, talking to people or interacting with people who are different from you or even maybe think negatively about the peop- the person you are, the, peop- the communities we come from, is it's okay that it's going to be hard for you. It's okay, it's uncomfortable. It's okay, sometimes you just don't want to do it. Um, and in a certain situation, some people bear more responsibility in these conversations and, you know, in the work that we're doing. And so kind of moving right along with the conversation, we talked a little bit about the ramifications in, in gender roles and how they play out in terms of education. Um, but let's talk about just societally, like men health outcomes and different things like that that we don't pay attention to. Um, how do those affect men particularly, because we're definitely sticking with men in this conversation, but young black and brown boys, how does this affect them and then grow into their adulthood? Yeah, I think, man, um, I don't remember, I remember hearing once just in like reading articles like a while ago about how women in a lot of different communities have, what is it, a longer life expectancy. Um, And I think even with Corona, um, we've been hearing that men have been more negatively impacted and, you know, they don't have exactly why or looking at different correlations, but when we think about people's support systems, so when we think about, and then of course this doesn't apply to all men, all women, but like when the way we're socialized and raised, women can talk about their feelings more. Um, they will reach out, they will call their friends, they will be able to voc- you know, vocalize whatever they're going through um, more than men do and men can. And we think about male relationships, it's not always as intimate or as deep. So it's like you have a hard day, you're not gonna necessarily just call someone one event all day about what happened. And when we think about just stress or even trauma, we hold that into our bodies, right? That impacts your health. Um, Not having someone to just call and talk to a group of people about what's going on, all that stuff builds up and it shows up in our body. There's something called a psychosomatic. So sometimes we start feeling different pains and things in our body and it's really connected to our mind. Um, So our mind, as we all know, is extremely powerful. So I think with a lot of different health outcomes, when I think about just the way men are socialized, it's like not having someone to talk to, um, to process those things, to vent to. Um, and also just all of the ways we're raised and socialized, men can be more impulsive when they're dealing with some kind of stress I mean, put themselves at risk um, when they're going through things. And we all know, and especially people of color and men of color, with the history of our country, uh, men, black, and, uh, black men and women 
have been experimented on um, in the medical field. So when we think about just health outcomes and health issues, there's a resistance, and especially I'm sure for an older generation, to go to the hospital, uh, to go get tested, um, to go get checkups. Um, so when we do have things, if we're not getting the same help and support, and just the communities we're coming from when they're under-resourced, and again, like corona, um, just black people in general dying at higher rates because of lack of access to resources, food, healthcare, all these different things. So we're disproportionately impacted um, by so much. Yeah, I definitely, um, I hope that one of the things that comes out of, uh, you know, the coronavirus is, is um, you know, just people are seeing, uh, you know, kind of the discrepancies and, and, and you know, just how different um, the, the, the outcomes are. I'm talking to teachers who, you know, they're getting, 25% of their students are joining these online classes and things to that to that effect. And, you know, while we're trying to get people to keep learning in the same exact environment, you know, some of these kids are just not okay right now. Um, and so ha having, having um, the uh, doing things to, to find out first, you know, what are these kids okay? And what can we do to help them be okay? Like that's, that's so much more um, important than the, than the schoolwork um at this you know at, at this time um you know, some, of, some, of the, some of the other things that came up for based on what you said was um you know, I, I always had a an attitude um when it came to anything of this i stay good like you know what i mean people be like how you doing i'm good like it's i'm good like, if that, that was always you know how i would respond or how i would um you know react and 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 I, I kind of believed it. Like you say something enough, like you, you know, you, you, you believe that that becomes the truth. Um, and I reached a certain point in my life, you know what I mean? I get it's, it's, well, I wouldn't call it a midlife crisis, but you know, like somewhere in, in my mid thirties, um, where I started to be, I would say I stay good. And, I, and then something in the back of my head was just like, no, you're not like, <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, okay. I was, you know, I, I was hurt and I was, I was, um, not, enjoying my job i was like i didn't want to go there anymore i, I would I, I was you know confused about about things but because i had always said you know i stay good and i you know puff up my chest and try to do the you know quote unquote masculine thing um th that that hid those feelings um from from me or you know what i mean it, it, it shoved them all down and uh you know whether it was watching certain movies or certain shows you know, I would find myself like watching a movie and something would happen where somebody goes and they, you know, they quit their job and then they go follow their dreams and then I would get like a little tear, like, you know, come in and I'm just, you know, like, hey, how to, to get rid of it as, as soon as possible because that's not, you know, masculine. That's that's not what, you know, being, being, a, being a man is about. And um, I, I think it taught me a lot as I, as I um, you know, I, I, I always thought that I was, you know, in touch, you know, with my feelings. I, 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 I am fortunate that I have friends from high school and things like that. So I, I, I've always had people who I can talk to um, and, and who, I, who I do talk to. I don't cry on shoulders and, and you know, and, and, and things to that effect. But, um, you know, I, I have an outlet. Um, it, it, it's everybody needs to have that outlet. Um, yeah. and, um, and first you have to know that you have to have that outlet and something within the, you know, our, our educational process, um, from a very young age certainly needs to start to, to have young boys understand, um, that they need that outlet, um, and that they have someone to trust and that they have someone to talk to, 
um, and, and so many of the problems and challenges that we have would be fixed if, um, if, if people didn't you know, lash out because they have this thing inside them that they don't understand because they have never had the ability to talk about it. Um, and so when somebody steps on their sneaker wrong or says something wrong with them, the, the, you know, when they go to punch them in the face, they're not trying to punch the person in the face. They're not mad at that person. They're mad inside. Um, and so are there things that you're, that, that, that you do, I guess, um, well, first of all, talk a little bit about the, the age groups that you kind of work with and, and, and communicate to, um, or have worked with, um, and you know, and what, what, what are the things that we can say to these, to, to, to people at a foundational level so that they can start to kind of take a deep breath and understand that it's okay to not be okay. Um, and it's okay to, to communicate that to people. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. And I feel like I have so much to say about what you were saying and it can relate to a lot of things. Like, um, just so I don't miss the question, because I wanted to say so much, is I, it made me think of this documentary, and I believe it's still on Netflix. It's the Mask We Live In, and you the hear Mask We Live In. Yeah, the Mask We Live In. I'm pretty sure that's the title, and I think it's on Netflix. And that's something I've shown some of the guys, um, and just the students at John Jay, and talked about masculinity. And you see, you know, guys in high school and men who are fathers. Uh, you see gay men there. You also see. Um, men who are incarcerated, who have killed people, who have attacked people, and they talk about how they got to that point, right? And I, it just made me think about that when you talked about punching someone. But um, I can relate to what you were saying in, like, a different way. I never thought I was – and I never was trying to be, like, that really tough masculine guy. So I thought, oh, I'm not like all these other guys. Like, I thought I was really in tune, but I really realized – in the last few years, I'm really not, or I haven't been. And I thought because I was always vocal about my opinion, that I was being vocal about my feeling. And that's mm. not true at all. I was, I did high school debate, so I was arguing with people, you know, as an activity um, for four years. I would be that person arguing with people on Facebook, and I was in all the student groups in college, and all my friends, if everyone knew what I was thinking about situations or communities, uh, but was I really saying how I feel, how people were making me feel? Um, no. And then for me, what that turning point was uh, three years ago, uh, no, tw in 2018, or one of the big turning points at least, was starting a job at a different college and having this horrible supervisor who was also actually another black man who I'm pretty sure was struggling with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. He was a veteran. Um, and... I felt like I was only there four or five months, but I felt like I was at that job for five, 10 years. Um, and it was hell every single day. Um, and I remember that I was like having, like I was starting to break down because I viewed my, like everything I am through my education or my job. It was like, this is what I, this is what I have, this is what I have, go what I have going forward. This is how I define myself. And I didn't realize that consciously. Um, so once I quit that job, uh, I was like on the train, like, okay, what, <laughs> who am I? What am I? Like, I got to get into therapy. I got to join a community board. I got to volunteer because I'm not someone who can have a whole bunch of free time. I like to stay busy. And I think before I used to stay busy to also avoid thinking about how I feel. Um, hmm. So me really going to therapy thinking, oh, I'm here to talk about that job. That's, that's why I'm there. Um, and I wanted to go before I lost my health insurance. I was like, I got to somehow make this work. <laughs> um, but I realized being in therapy and I barely talked about that job because I had to just really look back at how I was raised, um, all the experiences in my life, why I went to that job, why I stayed there, dealing with craziness, even if it wasn't for a long time. 
um, and how I use comedy actually a lot of times, and a lot of guys I think do that um, to mask how I was feeling. I was definitely that class clown when I was in high school. Um, and even the last few years, really looking at why I am the way I am, I was like, do I even want to be funny? And I do, and I like to be funny, but I don't have to do that all the time. Um, yeah. I remember learning with men, sometimes when they're depressed or they're overwhelmed, it can show up very differently. It can show up as making jokes, acting out, you know, doing things that don't really look like someone who is going to some kind of trauma or sad or depressed, you know can look like anger, right? That's something we can go to as men a lot more. So with the guys that I work with, um, I work with college age guys. So usually around 18 to 22, sometimes they're a little older. Um, and some of the things that we do is kind of just establish ground rules. Something I do with them is I don't call it like support groups because I just feel like the way we're socialized as men, a lot of them might not want to go. So I call them power groups or power workshops. Um, and I think that's a really masculine term and it's an acronym. So it stands for pushing our will to experience resilience and i think it's a pushing community. our will to experience to, resilience yeah um so that's something i came up with and in those group sessions we talk about um gender roles masculinity fatherhood um how to tie a tie so a little professional development um and the things and you know relationships and what they want to talk about i always try to bring that into so it's not me just trying to run all these different things um and I noticed what I try to do to get people to come, because I, I know even though this at John Jay, it's a commuter college. So getting so anyone to come to anything is hard, period. <laughs> so getting um, people to come to something that, you know, this isn't for your class, that you don't have to be there. And then also I'm targeting men of color. You know, it can be very difficult. So I focused on incentives, at least early on. So I was like, we give our ties, we give our movie tickets, we give our gift cards. Did you do anything in the last couple of years? You can put this on your resume. I can help tweak it, like leadership development, professional, whatever you want to call it, um, to get them to come into the room. And then once they're there, people feel comfortable. You know, there's things that we're doing, to, you know, icebreakers, different activities, you know, starting light before we jump into some of these different conversations. And at the end, most of the guys, if they come the first day, they usually stay um, for the eight weeks. And when I gave out a survey, I do it every year, but the first year I was really shocked because I said, what made you keep coming? And one of the choices was um, feeling connected to other men of color. And that was what they picked the majority of them. So it's like sometimes we see people, we see men, um, we see men of color and we think they don't want to necessarily talk about how they feel. They don't want to be connected. You know, all these assumptions and things we're putting on people and that's not necessarily the case. You got to make people feel comfortable. Uh, and I think that's hard when we're interacting with anyone when someone's not opening up or sharing, right? We want to be like, share, 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 share. And that's not going to make them share, right? So it's like, find out why they aren't. Um, ask them what will help you, you know, talk more about what's going on with you. You mentioned earlier um, about, you know, storytelling. And so, you know, I'm curious within the group, um, you know, give, give us a story about, you know, maybe the person or, or somebody, you know, so you obviously don't use names and stuff like that, you know, who, who's had the most kind of tra transformational um, eight weeks where, you know, they walked in and they were kind of, you know, hesitant. And at the end, you know, they, 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 they went through a process and came out on the other yeah. side and, you know, give us, give us what that would, what that looked like for somebody. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you said that my mind went to um, not one of the power groups, but I used to run also academic probation groups actually for students at John Jay. And there was this one guy who I remember in the beginning, he, we would sit in a circle and I remember he sat outside the circle and he looked mad. And I was like, damn, he's in my group. Like, 
oh god <laughs> uh, he just looks so angry um and i was like you know come sit in a circle and then he dragged his chair um he was like we got to be here we got to be here for how long and well, okay like he's not gonna want to be here like he probably won't keep showing up um and do the activity slowly but surely him feeling comfortable at the end i remember he said you know and a lot of guys in the power groups would say this now it's over you know we're not going to keep meeting um i think in the group sometimes i notice um I, i'm not thinking of a person but little moments that a lot of them have had like when we teach them how to tie a tie i remember i asked like you know who taught you how to tie a tie and that could be a whole conversation like my father or my mother or i don't know um and then i asked them to help each other and i feel like it, to me, it's a big deal. It seems like a little thing, but to see, you know, another man and you don't know him like that, helping you tie your tie, like it's intimate. Um, so seeing them do that, one guy shared, he taught his father how to tie a tie. Mm -hmm. So I was like, wow, I thought that was powerful. Um, people in the group, another, I guess, other moments that have stood out when I make them do this parent or fatherhood activity, I have an outline of a person on the front of the paper and an outline on the back. Um, and ask them on the front, write to the person who supported you the most in your life. And then on the back, write to your father or father figure, positive or negative, same thing. And sometimes there's people in the room who on the back, they're just not writing nothing. And they're like, there is no father or father figure in my life. And they get mad at the activity. Um, and there's other people who have just talked about their fathers being incarcerated or leaving. Uh, and just having those conversations where people aren't really opening up and being vulnerable. That's always like a big transformation for me. Like you came in here, you weren't even sure what this was. And then you can start sharing about, you know, challenges you've had and you can connect with other people in the room and they can be supportive to you. Um, I feel like I'm always shocked by their transformation. And even my transformation just starting, I remember I was like, I don't think I'm the right kind of guy to be doing this. <laughs> like, you know, cause I just feel like I don't fit that mold and I've learned so much about myself. So it's been like a parallel process doing these things and i'm grateful for the experience yeah that's incredible and just bringing myself back in um to to i'm clearly not a man um <laughs> I, <laughs> but i was raised by a man um so for people who listen to the podcast who don't understand me and my father's dynamic my dad's a single father and i grew up half of my my a little bit more than half of my life now, but with having a, a single father and living uh, predominantly with him. And so I think that a lot of things that you express feeling, so using uh, work to hide, having to talk about feelings, 100% me, um, like these, those sorts of things that I feel like I may have picked up on, um, and sort of behaviors that I may have picked up on because the predominant person taking care of me in my life was a man. And then obviously it was a village taking care of me. My grandma, my aunts, my uncles, everyone was a, was an active participant in my, in my life. But my grandmother, that generational guy, that, that generational, uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I didn't, I love her, of course, but that generational gap, I wasn't looking to her to be like, that's who I want to be when I grow up. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was, I think I looked to him for a lot of, this is how it's supposed to work. Obviously this is all unconscious. Um, and it's obviously me coming from, from looking at it and maybe that's how it works. Um, but I definitely think that I, I exude a lot of masculine energy because I, live with a very masculine man and um 
not to say we never talked about our feelings because we obviously did and he always checked in and stuff like that but my default is absolutely not hey let's sit down and talk about my feelings or it wasn't always now i'm much better yeah. probably yeah. a little bit far to the other side i think yeah no, and, I, <laughs> and i think us having a little bit of both like isn't you know there's nothing wrong with that i think that's the hard part <laughs> you know like having a little masculine family you know we all have a little bit of each one we do that little box activity but we're so nervous about just being okay with that or that it means something more than it's just who we are yeah, you 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 uh you, you mentioned a whole bunch of things um you know around fatherhood with the with the group and and, and stuff. Do you want to share anything? Um, and t- you, are you a father yourself? No, I'm not. And so, what, what what was there anything about your relationship with your father that that drove you wanting to put that you know as as a major part of you know what you teach and and uh, share with people? Yeah, you know what? Um, I think probably subconsciously, or maybe I didn't realize it. Um, doing that fatherhood activity when I came up with it. It probably was me, in a way, trying to explore more of that relationship since he passed away when I was in high school. Um, but when I think about my relationship with him, he wasn't necessarily someone who showed his feelings and emotions a lot. Um, he was just someone who, he was definitely a provider. And it was always, always someone stable in our lives, but not really seeing lots of different emotions from him. Um, and doing that activity really makes me think about that. And then it also makes me think, too, in high school with all my teachers, you know, and I'm still a little unclear with this, but I remember I had a lot of resentment towards, actually, I did it in the moment. It was years later when I looked back at it. When he passed away, I remember I had, what, seven, eight teachers, and only one of them said anything to me about it. I remember, like, having this note saying he passed away, and some of them I thought, maybe they just think I'm lying, and I accepted it, which when I look back, how, you know, that's sad. Um... But only one teacher, she was very old, and she started talking about how she had cancer and all these different things. And she didn't say anything, like, profound, but I just remember. And she wasn't a teacher I liked, but I was like, you tried. And when I look back at it, I think, you know, maybe they didn't know what to say, so they didn't say anything. But, you know, you're the teacher, and I'm the student, child, teenager. And I wonder, did that have anything to do with me being a black boy? Is that why you couldn't also express your feelings towards me? Um, Any kind of sympathy? but when I look back at it, the way I just accepted, like, they think I'm lying, probably, okay, um, and continued with that. And I think how sad that is. Um, so that's something I think about. So I guess it was probably a way for me to explore more. And we all have, all our relationships with our parents in some ways, I feel like complicated. Um, and it's like hard for us to see them as just people. Um, and they have wants and desires before us um, and still do. And, you know, no one's perfect, the parent or the child. Um, and our expectations. I feel like that's something I've learned more and more doing the activity. And it brings up a lot for people. Some people don't want to do it, so it can make them a little angry, but I think it's good to think about, let's talk about that. Um, yeah, you didn't one, have that person. One of the things I try to share with people, you know, anybody who's an adult, um, and you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's necessarily counterintuitive, but it's, it's just something that people um, typically don't go about you know, the business of exploring. But it's like, if you're an adult, your relationship with your parents is you are 100% responsible for it, like they are 100% responsible. It's not 50 mm. um, you, you Once you're an adult, whatever that relationship looks like, no matter what your parents did or how they did or what they didn't do, you know, it's you now get to decide how you are going to show up inside of that relationship. And you can hold resentment and things to that effect for what they did or they did not do, um, but you, you, you're 
it, it's up to you, you know, to, to bring whatever level of communication that you want to bring or, or, or don't want to bring. Um, and so, you know, with, with, with my parents, I, I didn't, there wasn't a, you know, me and Eva talked far more than um, me and, and my parents ever talked. You know what I mean? We, we, me and my parents, we have kind of things that we talk about and, you know what I mean? It, 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 it's, we, we, we talk within, you know, a, 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 a box. Um, but those things, you know, lend themselves to, uh, you know, I, I've, I've, since I've been, I guess, I don't know, some point in my mid twenties or something, I, I took what I just said to, to heart and I said, you know, no, no matter what they did, I now have to be a part of nurturing what our relationship is going to look and, um, you know, and, 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 and feel like, um, and I feel like my relationship is better with both of them today than it's kind of, you know, ever been as a result of, you know, it's every once in a while going a little deep on this subject and going a little yeah. deep on, on, on that subject, um, that, that because their parents, you know, maybe you think they would, they are supposed to, you know, bring those things up. But the reality is, is they are who they are and, 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 you know, they might never bring it up, you know what I mean? So if it's going to be brought up, it, it, it becomes incumbent upon, you know, a child sometimes to, you know, bring a, a wisdom to the relationship that, um, you know, that, that maybe people feel like they shouldn't have to be just because from a hierarchical perspective, they're the quote unquote child. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think, um, and it's also hard. It's just really hard, really hard. Um, to do those things. And I think I agree. Once you do become an adult, you have you have to look at what you have control over. Um, but it's hard because sometimes we'll see each other still in those same roles as parent-child. And it's hard to communicate on that adult level at times. And sometimes for some and everyone, I know everyone has a different situation. And I know for me, it's going, it was also really challenging having difficult conversations uh, with at least my mom to get to a better place. So sometimes you have to kind of go through that fire to get on the other side. And I guess every part of our lives and even ourselves, like I was saying with that difficult work experience, you know, sometimes it feels like you got to hit rock bottom to be able to grow that better relationship. No, I definitely agree with that. And I think kind of getting back to the education piece and how all of what we just talked about cannot be separated. So I think that's a big big thing that within the education system that is missing. I've had, I've heard educators say, don't call, don't call your students, your kids. Don't, don't, don't make, it's not, they're not your kids. They're your students and making it, making it a dis uh, association between the relationship between teacher and student and how intimate that can be and how intimate it, it should be. Um, because knowledge is so incredibly important and the way that we receive knowledge is all based off of our feelings and our emotions. So I think, um, like a question that I wanted to ask you is a little bit about dropout rates among men of color in high school. So they're have them having that barrier to even getting to higher education, not finishing mm-hmm. secondary education and how that's such a deeply emotional decision. Like people are made, that's a deeply emotional decision for a student to walk into the school or walk out and never walk back in. Um, so just talk a little bit about the numbers in terms of what those rates are and what some of the emotional pieces and the key parts of, of students that come up for them and why they choose to walk out that door and never come back. 
Yeah. Um, when you were talking about the relationship with the teacher and student and, you know, what you call the student, whether it's a kid and just sounds like, you know, trying to create those boundaries. But it made me think of also a quote by Maya Angelou. Um, you may forget what someone says. You may forget what someone does, but you never forget how someone makes you feel. Um, and I think we can all think about, you know, teachers who made us feel great and teachers who made us feel horrible. And you, you don't forget that. Like I said, that day when I had to come back to school after my father passed away, I remember that one teacher, who's not the one I like, but the one I appreciate the most after that, who said something. Um, so I think that's important for anyone, regardless of what you do in education or outside. Like, what are you doing? How are you making people feel? Because they might not remember the details, but they'll remember that. Um, I don't know exact numbers right now off the top of my head with just like high school dropout rates, but I know when I was in social work school, I remember hearing this and I never thought about it this way. Um, there's a different way you can describe it. Instead of saying high school dropout, some people in education will say um, high school pushout. And I really like that because then it doesn't put the onus on the student. It's what is this system doing that's pushing these kids out, right? And especially if it's a certain kind of kid. Um, but I know there's certain grades, um, I believe it might be eighth grade and 10th grade, like certain grades where there's a correlation with how many men will drop out and black and Latino men and how they drop out or get pushed out and then end up in the criminal justice system, so the school to prison pipeline. Um, and I think some of that's even in the documentary The Mask You Live In, where you see some of these men who are incarcerated talk about stopping school and then what are their other alternatives. Um, and of course, there's not all men, people don't finish school or go to college, and there's so many different paths you can take, but what you're more at risk of, especially as a black man in our, in our country. Um, and I think when I think about that example of the teachers not saying much to me when my father passed away, I think of a friend who, um, not a black man, but a black woman who was smartest kid in our high school. She was, and she's someone I still keep in contact with and eventually she finished high school. Um, and she experienced all these different forms um, of trauma and issues that she dealt with. But when she stopped going to school, I remember, you know, she's my friend, I call her all the time and we still keep in contact to this day. Again, she had maybe one teacher, if that, reach out you just stopped and we went to a pretty good school like uh so i can only imagine we went to a worse school uh the way we were treated um no one followed up you know she stopped going and maybe they sent an email or those automatic calls but only one teacher uh, and, I, and she remembers that to this day so imagine having you know a village of people in your school when a student is struggling or decides not to come back or is missing you know not policing them but a team of people checking in on you, you know? It's like if you're in a family and you, your child is 15 and doesn't come home, right? Like, what do you do? Do you just go, okay, they didn't come home, let me text a call, it's fine. Or are you letting them know, yes, you might be mad at them, but I wanna make sure you're okay. I think if we start thinking of people as a community and we're community oriented and you know I know with a lot of the cultures we come from as black Latino Asian people we come from community collectivist cultures and in this country and western countries it's all about the individual so if there's ways we can mix those two I think that would make schools a lot better um, you know having an afrocentric way of dealing with things so so from an institutional perspective like if you got to you know write the new rules on on how it would work um, what would you institute in 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 schools to make sure that that some of that is uh, is is occurring? Like, who, 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 what what would the role be? Would it be a guidance counselor's responsibility? So we need more guidance counselors. Like, how would that look? Yeah, well, I think if I was running a school, we all go into Hogwarts, and this is going to be a Harry Potter school, <laughs> the Black Harry Potter. 
um, but you know what? I think definitely way more guidance counselors and social workers. And you know what? You know, I guess the ideal school, and I know it's hard, but not having so many kids in the classroom, um, having the parents connected and involved, and not in a pressure way. You know, sometimes you hear. Um, I guess maybe teachers aren't saying as much now because now the kids are at home and the parents are saying how things are. I see like a lot of memes about that, but having parents involved in the way they can be involved. Like if you have to work a job or you're working another time a parent-teacher conference or different things or multiple jobs, you might not be able to be in a school, but where you could just be connected, whether that's Zoom or a phone call. Um, so definitely, you know, maybe a staff person where their job is just connecting with the parents and their families. Like not, you know, that would be good. Having more guidance counselors, social workers, way more teachers, um, having everyone trained, uh, understanding anti-racism, anti-black racism, um, understanding where the kids coming from, having services for, you know, making sure that all the students have food, are connected to healthcare, dental care, um, extracurricular activities, things are, that are fun, not focusing on tests so much. Like what you were saying earlier, um, and I know that's a whole bunch of just like random stuff, but, um, what you were saying earlier about like right now kids are going through a lot and it's not necessarily just getting the work done, checking in on them. We kind of need that mindset all the time. Um, I remember listening to a podcast and this lady was talking about, I think it was when someone in her life died and she was like, I wish I just had like a little sign on me that said, just be gentle. Cause you, you know, you don't see me, you don't know what's going on. But it's like, if we could just do that all the time and we don't get it perfect, right? Like we all mess up. I go crazy on my family sometimes. Like <laughs> I'm not perfect by any means, but it's like us all reflecting um, and being gentle with especially young people and the people we're working with. Cause we don't know what people are going through. Some people may share, maybe we can see it and maybe we can't. Um, the problem we all have is when we don't have enough information, we start to tell a story. Like, you know, he, like when I talked about that student who wasn't sitting in a circle, I was like, oh, he don't want to be here. He's going to give me problems, right. you know, just adding so much to it because we don't have the information. And maybe, you know, having a staff person to just check in on all the other staff members, you know, like not as a supervisor, like, hey, I'm here to kind of just check in on all of you. What's going on? You got problems. How can I help you? You know, I think in a world where we just have all those other resources, uh, things would be better. And we see there are schools that are like that in a lot of ways. They're just usually wealthy, predominantly white, um, you know, K to 12 schools, even those specialized high schools. The differences with a lot of those schools is like, it's a place where everyone's not only coming to learn, but there's the resources if there's a problem or issue, right? And it's, um, and this also made me think of, I watched Red Table Talk oh, a couple months ago, and it was this guy, he was talking about relationships, and he said, you know, with my girlfriend, when, or I, I don't know if it was a girlfriend or wife, but he said, the way I see the problem is, it's not, she's doing something or I'm doing something. If we have a problem in our relationship, it's us versus the problem. So I think if we looked at it in education like that, like, if there's something going on, yeah, if there's something going on, it's not the kid maybe not even just the teacher or it's like, how can we come together versus the problem, not the person? Um, I think that would change a lot of things. That's definitely incredible. And like you talking about the relationship, I think the biggest thing that I highlighted that you said is staff, a staff member dedicated to school, like the school community relationship. Um, and so if there's one person whose job it is to check in with parents or send parents what's going on in each classroom or man the school social media so that the parents are seeing on Instagram what's going on right, with, right. with their student or with their, because it, we, there's also always this narrative in, in black and brown communities and in low income communities that the parents don't care. They don't try. They don't even, right. they don't, and it's, 
we also have to think about the parents' relationship to education and if their parents' parents were involved in their education and if their parents' parents weren't involved in their education, they might not understand the importance of being involved in their child's education. They also might have so many other things going on in their life and so many other things they're worried about that that's not something on their radar because they expect the school to be doing all of these different things. And so what came up for me is in eighth grade, that was probably the hardest year of my life. And the things that I was going through outside of school, no one in the school building was aware of. No one in the building was aware of, except for maybe two or three of my friends. And so I, I had, I think I lost two family members. I was going, like, it was just a lot that I was going through in my life and none of them knew. And so, and I feel like when, when I have a school, that will never ever be the case. It's not going to be possible for a parent to not think that it's important to tell the the teachers in the school that this person lost a family member or this person is going through this situation at home and needs and is going to need like you said for people to be gentle and so too often um too often schools disassociate themselves with the with the social emotional part of the child and associate themselves with the academic needs of the child but the problem is that they are too interrelated to not have the conversation together Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree. And um, it makes me think, I remember a couple of years ago, I saw the documentary Waiting for Superman about getting kids in charter schools. And when I hear people, I always think about that documentary when I hear people say like, you know, poor black and brown parents don't care about education and these different things. If you see that documentary, you'll see all these parents trying to get their kids into a charter school and it's through a lottery. And you just see them, the ball and that like rolly thing that they use. Um, and you see like only a couple spots and it's a gym full of parents. And you see the way people are crying because they want their kid to get picked from this lottery or how people are lying on their addresses or, you know, just people, parents going to all these PTAs and all these different schools. So it's like, you know, no parent, no school is going to have every single parent involved, right? That's not possible. And the ones who have more stress and are more overwhelmed, it's just harder to show up, right? Physically be there, mentally be there. Um, but I think, you know, that's just racism when people are saying those things about us that we don't care about our communities. We don't care about our kids. We don't care about our school. Like, Absolutely. if we didn't, we wouldn't be talking about it at all. We wouldn't be showing up. We wouldn't be sending these kids to school at all. Like, you know, all these different things. And especially, I went to a predominantly white high school and the I my dad always went to parent-teacher conference and always went to open house even when I was a senior and it was no longer necessary. (laughs) Uh, He he was that parent but I knew so many of my friends whose parents never showed up for those things and never came to their games and never like was just not involved at all in their education experience but because the resources were available to them it wasn't as much of a detriment to their their academics. They were able to go to a teacher after school. They were able to 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 go on Khan Academy at home because they had internet and they had a laptop of their own. So it's just the resources and the way that they're allocated has such a huge impact on the entirety of this conversation. And I think when we're bringing it back to masculinity and how masculinity has taught society to work, um, we oftentimes forget that just the same way that girls need help boys need help too. And that social, and if a school doesn't find the social emotional part important, we're not going to figure out that black boys in this school are not doing well because of X, Y, and Z. I go to a a minority serving institution 
and of the graduating class, I don't know what the percent is, but it's a very minuscule percent of black um, men graduating from John Jay College, from, from a minority serving institution. So from a space that's supposed to support um, minorities and supposed to cultivate an environment where minorities are thriving, even in that space, yeah. they, there's a lack. So why is that? And the answer needs, we have to figure that out. But we're talking about a college space and, and how many black and brown boys aren't even making it there. Um, and so I kind of want to move into to something that we talked about in our pre-call with the resilience principles and how we can start talking about those and how they, um, how they can help move in a better direction for, for black, black boys and boys of color. Yeah, and um, before I even get into the residency principles, I wanted to say, when you were talking about going to a predominantly white school, sometimes we kind of romanticize these other schools and these other neighborhoods, but when we think about what the experiences are of the Black and Latino students in them, it's not always, right? You might have more resources, but then it's, you can be second-guessed or overlooked or experiencing racism and microaggressions and harassment. So it's like all these different things. So it's like, you might be in a better school, but then you have different issues mm -hmm. um, because of the space that you're in, whether that's K through 12 or even um, in you know, undergrad or grad school. But with the resiliency principles, this professional development class I was taking at John Jay, it was a called, it's called practical teaching and um, practical teaching and teaching resilience um, in the classroom. And we learned about these four principles, stability, capacity, flexibility, and community. And looking at those different things to kind of increase resilience and why people are um, just more resilient than others. And when we think about those four things, maybe to just go through them each. And maybe that's something schools should be doing, right? Like, our students who are more resilient, what are they doing and how can we increase their resilience? So the stability would be the first part, making sure people's basic needs are met. If you don't have food, right, you can't pay attention, you can't learn, your brain isn't necessarily developing. Um, so making sure people's basic needs are met outside of the school, but also inside the school, making sure people have some kind of understanding or background knowledge before you talk about what you talk about. Flexibility, um, the great way I heard it described is bend without breaking, um, which I really like. So we need to be flexible, but there needs to be some kind of structure. Um, I think when we think about teachers, we think about people who are too flexible, too strict, you know, it's somewhere in the middle that works the best for us in life. Capacity is kind of like what can we all handle, right? And how can we help people handle more? And community, what is good about that is it needs to be, it shouldn't be too fluid or too fixed. So, you know, there needs to be some traditions and rituals, right, to build the community, but also people need to change, right? There needs to be individuality that can be embraced within the community. So when we look at those four things, people having them uh, helps them overcome different challenges. And resiliency is a little bit of a complicated thing. I remember learning in social work school because you could have two twins that live in the same house, that went to all the same schools. And, you know, they're just different people, right? Different spirits but can have such different outcomes in life. And sometimes it's not always as clear what those differences are, or at least I don't know um, what makes those differences always. No, I think that's definitely powerful. And important to have a, a wider conversation about because I think that's a big um, a, something that people will use to say that things don't have to change so those mm. people are like she is she's good she made it out she had a had a good GPA she got into college she did so it's possible so all those other people are lazy all those other token. and so 
using these principles is to say, no, she has this thing. She found this thing and we need to figure out how we can capitalize and, and, and grow that thing. She's figured out how to be resilient, how to bend without breaking, how to do these different things. And so how do we take that, bottle it, and then start using it to help the students who aren't doing as well? That, that's the importance of the resiliency principles, not using that to say, oh, <laughs> there's not a problem because she made it or because, or because he did well. Um, I think that's, that isn't super incredible. <laughs> no, I totally agree. Um, and I'm happy we're even thinking about what makes people more resilient and how we can try to increase resilience. Um, and I think also it's a more positive way to look at it versus what people are lacking or what they did wrong. How can we kind of increase the things that are working? So just to round out our conversation, I think that we touched on all the things that I kind of wanted to touch on in terms of masculinity, in terms of gender roles, all of these different things that kind of are... I think the biggest problem with it is that they're they're just under they're not looked at and it's the impact of them and how much of an impact it is. We cannot separate uh, being a woman or being a man or how we identify or our our LGBTQ status or any we can't separate those things from how we come into whatever space that we're in. Um, and so, if schools are not having the conversation of well, we have a lot of men coming from these communities. We understand that these communities have these sorts of behaviors in them. How do we counteract that? But also how do we use that to help them? Because we don't want people to think that everything about them is wrong. Everything about being masculine is not wrong. Yeah. Right. There's just issues with how we present them and how we, and, and, and what we believe that those things mean for us. If you think masculinity yeah. means that you can't cry, well, that's a problem. But if, but if you think masculinity means that you need to make sure that you're being strong and you're a support system for the people in your family, well, then that's an incredible right. for masculinity. So it's how do yeah. we great parts about it, use it to advance, and then how do we we rescind um, the the negative parts about it and and start to take away those behaviors and replace them with ones that are going to help people be more successful. Um, yeah. So that if there's anything else you want to add, but I think we definitely. Um, had an incredible conversation. Sorry, I just was trying to avoid the uh, phone <laughs> for a second. Um, no, I I, I agree. I, I'm um, I, I, you know I think we we, uh, we you know we touched base on a on a on a whole bunch of things. Um, you know, is there anything you want to leave people with? Like you know, in in, in terms of um, you know if you if, if you could think of you know kind of kind of three things. Um, that you would want people to to know um, that you know that they're not necessarily kind of you know walking around with on a, on a, on a day to day basis that relates to you know how masculinity affects um, you know people's educational outcomes. What would those three things be? Yeah, um, I think I would have. I don't know if this is necessarily. Uh, you know, so I think like I always answer questions like that. Like, I don't know if I'm really going to answer this question, but <laughs> um, I guess the first one for everyone, and because we all play a role, right, whether you identify as a man or think yourself as someone really masculine to enforce, right, these positive or negative behaviors, everybody does that. So one, um, where did you learn these things? Um, two, how has it been working out for you um, forcing yourself to fit into certain gender roles, right? Has it been working? Um, if you think it's working, right, are you going to necessarily want to change it? Probably not. Do other people think it's working? Um, 
and what are alternatives for you and what are alternatives we can do when we're working with lots of different people. So I think it just helps us all like look at who we are and the communities we're living in, families, schools, you know, unpack all that, like who we are, why we are, is it working, what can change, what are our alternatives? I think sometimes it's hard to see yourself another way if you haven't seen it modeled. And I think once we start kind of deconstructing all these generals for all of us, we start becoming, you know, kind of our true self. I think regardless of, you know, trying to be more masculine or feminine, we realize kind of as babies, all this stuff we learn about the world. And then it's kind of like we get into adulthood and we're trying to unpack those things, right? Like, who am I? When I remove all these labels and words, like just who am I at my core? Um, why am I the way I am? And who do I want to be? And what do I want to do? I think we can do our best work when we start to work on ourselves and then we can help and support other people. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. So we always close out with letting our guests ask us any questions. So switching the role between interviewer and interviewee. And um, yeah, so if you have any questions for us. You know, I think I asked this right before we started, but what made you guys want to work together and start this podcast? Because I think it's cool. <laughs> uh, so I guess I'll go first. Um, I want to start this podcast because, first of all, uh, just going back to the name, Black on Black Education, I think Black on Black Crime is used far too often and it is, it's just racist. Like, it, there's no other kind of way around it. If you are a person who lives in any society, it is more likely that you will be killed, robbed, any, any crime that can be committed, it is more likely that the, that the person who perpetrated that crime is someone who looks like you, is probably someone who knows you. And so that, that, those are the statistics. Totally, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and for, and for me, keep going, I'm sorry. Yeah, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> um people, uh, people you yes people it's, it's just more like that that's the step the statistics so we like to people like to use numbers to frame certain groups of people then those are the numbers that they need to use it is more likely that someone who looks like you will be the will be the perpetrator of the crime against you so the idea that black on black crime is something different from any other crime is not true um, and so I wanted to use Black on Black education as something that is positive to have a positive conversation about what collective Black community can mean and what collect collective Black community can experience together. Um, so that was really my idea behind it. And then I love everything that has to do with education. And so because education has been such a huge part of my life and so important to me, I wanted to find create a space where we can look to the future of what education can look like specifically for communities of color. Such a good title. And I just wanted to support, you know, her in, in, uh, in, in the endeavor. Um, I too, again, I, I think that, uh, you know, I believe that children are the future. So, you know, <laughs> it's, I, I think that, uh, you know, education and, and how we, um, you know, get better at, you know, transforming lives um, is, is going to determine whether or not, you know, we're able to transform our community um or, or not and um i i am an optimist i think that um we, we we can transform our communities i think that you know in the next 10 years 20 years 30 years you know we we, we the conversations that we have today that we cannot be having anymore um but if that's going to happen it's going to be because we start to um 
to to build young minds and and build young hearts and 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 build you know young people who are going to grow up recognizing um the power you know that that uh that that lies within them and so um the only way that they're going to be able to recognize that power is if we is if we show it to them so um i think this is a a, a method with which we can do that mm-hmm. yeah thank you Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. I think this is going to be a great one. It's also touching on a lot of the things that conversations that we had on a previous podcast about masculinity and about masculinity specifically in the black community. And so this is more touching into education. And I think that both hand in hand really have a wide scope of what masculinity in the black community looks like and in the and in communities of color and then how um, they manifest and how we can stop that manifestation from being something negative and turn in and be a part of something that's more positive. Yeah. And thank you all just for having me. And I can't wait to listen to the episode and share it with everyone I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely nice meeting you. And um, I, I enjoyed the conversation very much. Me too.